Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is, well, it's going to be epic. And I think you're all going to love it. So before we jump in, I just want to thank our sponsors and tell you a little bit about them. Our first sponsor to thank is RestoraCell. And look, we talk about a lot of different peptides on this podcast, but have you actually heard of incorporating copper peptides into your skincare routine yet? If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you probably have. But if you're new to peptides or new to this podcast, maybe not. So here's what I'm talking about. Copper peptides, the copper peptide or GHKCU is a small naturally occurring protein fragment that easily penetrates the dermis and is essential for keeping skin looking healthy and youthful. The copper peptide GHKCU actually does a lot more than that, but when it's applied topically to the skin, it does amazing things. And the products from Vitaly RestoraCell have been a total game changer for my skin. They are formulated to boost collagen protection, which helps fight the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles and improve elasticity in the skin. Plus, the copper peptide can help to combat oxidative damage, which is essential when it comes to skin aging. Now, if you want to try these products for yourself, just head over to www.vitaliskincare.com and use my code NAT25 to save 25% off your order. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this episode. Did you know that hormones play a pivotal role in directing the course of your health throughout your lifetime? Of course you did. You listened to this podcast. But let's think about this a little more deeply. From physical growth and development to emotional well-being and reproductive health, these chemical messengers are vital for our overall well-being. Understanding how hormones function and seeking appropriate medical guidance can ultimately help us to navigate through the various stages of life while maintaining hormonal balance. Today, Dr. Felice Gersh joins me as we take a closer look at the different types of estrogens, their individual impacts on the body, and the importance of understanding their nuances for overall health. I have been dreaming about having Dr. Gersh on this podcast forever, so I am so excited that she's here today. We also discuss how reproduction is the prime directive of life and how hormones act as hormonal glue to enable reproductive success. Plus, we dive into some of the benefits and complexities of hormone replacement therapy, HRT, including when to start and the potential risks that can be associated with it in certain instances. Dr. Felice Gersh is board certified in both OBGYN and integrative medicine. She is the founder and medical director of the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, California. Always passionate about learning and education, she taught obstetrics and gynecology at Keck USC School of Medicine for 12 years as an assistant clinical professor. Dr. Gersh now serves as an affiliate faculty member at the Fellowship in Integrative Medicine through the University of Arizona School of Medicine, where she lectures and regularly grades the case presentations written by the fellowship students for their final exams. They are very lucky people indeed. Dr. Gersh is a globally recognized expert on a wide range of female and integrative health topics, and we are so excited to have her here today. 
To find out more about Dr. Gersh and her practice, you can go to www.integrativemgi.com. All right, now let's get into our second sponsor for this episode. Have you ever experienced those days when it seems impossible to concentrate? I've been there too. And I have found that blue canatine has become my go-to solution for enhancing productivity. Troscription's flagship nootropic blue canatine is formulated with five milligrams of methylene blue plus nicotine, a tiny bit of caffeine plus hemp crystals to put you into hyper-focus mode. I find for me, this supplement totally hits the spot. By incorporating this supplement into your routine, you can experience heightened focus, improved memory retention, as well as increased overall brain function. I also love that all of the ingredients in this formula are precision-dosed, physician-formulated, and purity potency tested. To check out Blue Canatine plus their other supplements, Just Blue and TroCalm, go to troscriptions.com and use code NATPODCAST. All right. This is the part where I thank you for listening to the podcast and for sharing it with your friends and your family and anybody else in your network who you think could get value from it. I also thank you for leaving reviews for the podcast because that's how we get all these amazing guests. Finally, this is the part where I also direct you to my website, natnidham.com, because that's where you can find out about my membership community on Mighty Networks. It's also where you can find out about the Women's Resilience and Longevity Retreat that I'm hosting in the Dominican Republic from November 1st to 6th. And it's also where you can find all the past podcasts that we've recorded. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so appreciative of you guys and enjoy the episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Dr. Felice Gersh, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so excited for this conversation. Well, I'm excited as well. And we started off by talking about all the things we're going to talk about. So I'm really thrilled to have this opportunity. Yeah, no, likewise. I, you know, I always love to, you know, I'm, and I think most podcasters do this, like in a few minutes before leading into a conversation, kind of framing it and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and especially when, I mean, I've, we've crossed paths at a number of occasions, but we haven't had the chance really to sit and talk. So you know, basically people are going to get to sit in on our first conversation together, which is exciting. <laughs> um, and I've definitely heard you speak at a number of things. So I know, I feel like I've got some familiarity with with your topic, which is such a huge topic. So we're really going to lean into women's hormones and how they affect us through the lifespan. And I think that, you know, a couple of the things I'd like to touch on is Let's start with laying out the landscape of women's hormones, how important they are to us, which we know critically, but the roles that they play and maybe even touch a little bit on testosterone, which is you know thought of as a man's hormone, but really we both know that both estrogen and testosterone are important to both sexes. And then just kind of go from there because once we get through the peri post menopause years, things shift so dramatically. So I'm going to let you rip. Let's let's start with hormones. <laughs> well, the first premise that I think is really important and is sort of missed um, is that reproduction is really the prime directive of life. Now, recognizing that the 
only species on the planet that actually works to control their reproductive destiny, you know, are humans because yeah. you don't have a, an animal in the wild who says, you know, maybe this year we should pause and <laughs> not have, um, you know, a baby, you know, it doesn't work that way. And so humans should have the, you know, we're a little bit different than all the other animals in the animal kingdom in that regard. And I believe we should have the option of choosing but given that that issue completely aside about choosing, I think it's so important to recognize that fertility and reproduction is really what the female body is optimized and designed for. So given that and recognizing that, realizing that the so-called sex hormones like estradiol, you know, the estrogens, and we'll talk about what is what is an estrogen anyway, and progesterone. I don't think of them any longer as sex hormones. I think of them as life hormones because mm -hmm. in order for a woman to be successful with reproduction, she needs to have a healthy body. And yeah. pregnancy is now recognized finally. I mean, those of us who did obstetrics recognize this many years ago, but that pregnancy is the ultimate stress test for a woman mm -hmm. for her body goes through so many changes and it's really on like thin ice because pregnancy is a very unique time when in order to accommodate the, you know, the, this foreign entity, we have to have modifications of the immune system in order to supply the proper nutrients and glucose to grow a baby. You have to develop a little bit of insulin resistance so mm -hmm. that you can grow uh, yourself as a woman, you know, fat tissue by having a little higher insulin, the blood volume doubles, you have to have a more energetic heart. I mean, you just need to have many modifications in the body. <clears throat> and therefore, well, I call it the hormonal glue. Estrogen is like the hormonal glue that glues all the organ systems together with the reproductive system to enable reproductive success because you need to have a woman who can get through pregnancy, which is a very stressful time physiologically, and then be able to nurse the baby and raise a child to its sexual maturity so it can do its own thing and do that multiple times over again to make sure that the species actually sustains itself in terms of numbers because yeah. of course survival wasn't always there. So once we have this understanding, then we can understand why there are receptors and functionality of these hormones in every organ system. So it's not just about the ovaries and the tubes and the uterus and the vagina. No, it's about mm -hmm. every organ system in the body. So when you lose these vital life hormones, which is inevitable and universal across every continent and every ethnic group on the on planet Earth for human females, when you lose the ovarian function, which we call ovarian senescence, which is really what is behind the so-called menopause, then what happens is you lose these vital life hormones. And therefore, every organ system in the body takes a real metabolic shift and a hit, and you have the onset of aging and all the diseases associated with aging, I view really as due to essentially fundamentally hormonal deficiency states, yeah. which then yeah. goes down like a sort of a domino into a whole host of additional deficiencies, like nutrients, because you have, you know, changes and so on. You know, it's interesting how you brought up the fact that the human species is the only species that decides, oh, maybe we shouldn't have a baby this year, which is hilarious. We're also the only human species, well, the only species 
that has decided that we're going to outsmart mother nature and say, you know what? You may think we're done once we're done with our reproductive years. We don't think we're done. We actually would like to stick around. And not only would we like to stick around, but we'd like to stick around and be smart and be vibrant and be mobile and enjoy this whole next phase of our life, which mother nature is probably sitting there scratching her head. If she's a thing going, what are you thinking? No, no, this is not the plan. The plan is you're born. We get you through puberty. We keep your mother around and your grandmother around maybe a little while just to make sure you were taken care of. And then you move on and you leave room for the next generation. And I think a lot of our conversation is going to speak to how these deficiencies that we acquire, you know, in our hormone systems, which drive all the other systems, it's really a natural decline because of the natural, you know, because of the natural cycle of life, if you will. And we've well, decided as a species, yeah, no, that's not good enough for us. We, we, we want more. <laughs> well, it's really interesting you bring that up because I went back and looked at the history of like we'll say the history of women going through menopause. And if you go back to ancient civilizations, like ancient Egypt, so that was like their civilization three to 5,000 years ago. And that's sort of the beginning of recorded history with you know hieroglyphics. Yeah. And so I looked at it and if you survive childhood, which was a feat in itself, yeah. the average woman lived to age 35. And then if you go up to like the 12th century and then even up to in the last hundred or so years, the average lifespan was only in the mid 50s. So in reality, menopause was not really a major issue. You know, it really very little time of a woman's life, if any, was spent in menopause. So really, this longevity thing is really a very new thing. And, you know, yes, we are for the first time in history, in the whole history of of humanity, and humans have been on planet Earth for a very long time, is really this whole healthy longevity thing is really new. So, yeah, I think um, we're super clever to say, (laughs) how can we live long after menopause? Because now some women, and I could definitely be one of them, you know, live half their lives as a menopausal female. And, And so... We really need to come up with better solutions than I call it the whack-a-mole of of modern medicine, which is (laughs) as every problem develops, you like do something like, oh, now you have cataracts, we'll put in new eye lenses. Now you have joint problems, we'll put in a new hip and a new knee in, and we'll give you, you know, an implantable ventricular assist device and put in stents and give you six or seven different pharmaceuticals and on and on. I would rather be more, I'll say proactive, and maintain the healthy status as best we can of a younger woman so that we don't have all of those, like we'll say diseases of aging and all of that high tech and very effective, but high tech and undesirable for us as individuals, medical interventions. And really the fundamentals is understanding menopause as not just loss of your period. So I really wish the word menopause never evolved because it just stands for loss of your period, your monthly cycle. And really it's about loss of ovarian function, ovarian senescence, and all the downstream consequences of that, of which loss of fertility, of course, is a big thing for Mm -hmm. women. You know, maybe they didn't finish their families or whatever, and and menopause snuck up on them, but really understanding the global impact on every organ system. 
and how these hormones really interplay with every system is really fundamental to trying to create a healthy scenario for aging in our yeah. new world of living long. Well, and, and that's a great, that's a beautiful framework for the conversation. And I think that one of the things that maybe doesn't get talked about enough is, you know, what what younger women, how younger women should could be addressing their health and their life and their hormonal health mm-hmm. so that they move into the, through these transitions with greater ease. Because I think that a lot of the worst menopausal symptoms that we see very often are a sign of a system that was out of balance to begin with that's coming crashing through this period that is already, you know, if you don't have your house in order and you're going through a massive transition, it's going to be more traumatic. And you, we meet women and you would know this better than me. Like I come across women every once in a blue moon who's like menopause wasn't a thing. I like, I didn't feel it. And that I think is the sign of a woman whose hormones and whose whole system was really well balanced coming into this phase of transition. And so they move through it with greater ease than many other women who, you know, and and to your point about the universality, the universal impact of hormones on the system, autoimmune disease, any metabolic imbalances, all of these things will have an effect on how we transition through menopause. Well, I, one of the analogies, and that's wonderful that you brought that up, would be going back to like pregnancy. Now we've put an emphasis on preconceptual health, right? Yes. You don't want to enter pregnancy and you're in very bad health status. You want, because pregnancy is a huge stress. And really we now know that when you fail pregnancy, so to speak, you have complications. It's really um, a big red flag that when you go through menopause, you are also going to take this metabolic hit in a very bad way. So I like to think of your health savings account for Mm -hmm. you create over your lifespan, not just for when you go through pregnancy, if you do, but for menopause. So you're 100% right. So the health that you have when you hit this really big metabolic shift, your symptoms and sort of like, we'll say the pace of things changing in, and, and basically how you will fare for the rest of your life. So it is imperative for women to know that when they hit menopause, if they have a really healthy musculoskeletal system, like they have really great bones and great muscles and ligaments and tendons, if they have been like really working on their emotions, so they have good emotional resilience and their cognition and function is really great because they've been doing all the things to keep their brain healthy. They have a healthy immune system because that takes a huge hit after Mm -hmm. menopause. You know, if their cardiovascular system is robust because they've been fit and eating the right foods and and every organ system is sort of in a very good situation when they go through this menopausal transition, they will definitely fare better through that transitional few years, but also for the rest of their lives. So it isn't, um, you know, you're never too late in the sense that wherever you are on the timeline, you have to start from there. You can't go back in time. For sure. But for women who are younger, oh my goodness, all the decades preceding menopause is going to have a huge impact on 
all the rest of your life. I mean, of course, we now know that, for example, Alzheimer's disease, the stage is set probably 20, 30 years before you see the manifestations. Now they're saying the same with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. We know that osteoporosis doesn't happen in one day, but you do have a great acceleration of bone loss in the very first few years of menopause. So if if you didn't save up and then you have that rapid loss, you're going to be in obviously worse shape. And then you can go through every organ system in that kind of a framework that, you know, when you enter the menopausal transition in a very good state, you're definitely going to fare better. And we do know that there is some correlation between like your body composition, like higher BMI, women tend to have more hot flashes and night sweats. I mean, so there is some, it's not perfect, but there is some correlation between menopausal symptoms and your basic metabolic state when you go through the transition. So the better off you are, the better off you'll stay for yeah, sure. For sure. Okay. So let's, let's dive in a bit to the, to the, to these hormones that we're talking about. And I think that, you know, obviously estrogen is at the top of the list. Everybody wants to know about estrogen progesterone is it comes in a hot second because it's yeah. you know the two of them work in tandem kind of thing and then i'd love to touch on testosterone a little bit for women because again this is a hormone that very often doesn't get discussed with women with their with their physicians and they miss out on the anabolic benefits of testosterone the libido benefits all of the things that testosterone does for us kind of in the background and that we want to keep an eye on as we, as things start to shift, but, you know, let's start with estrogen because people, you know, either think of it as the best thing since sliced bread or they're terrified. They're like, Oh my God, estrogen is going to give me cancer. And I, and I know that like, I mean, I've had conversations with people who are terrified of BHR of bioidentical hormone replacement therapy simply because they're like, well, estrogen is going to give me cancer. And I'm like, you know, so here's the thing. If that was true, every young woman out there, <laughs> would have cancer right now. So the body's just not that simple. So if you could maybe share with the audience, lay out that landscape of the estrogens and that stuff, that would be great. Well, the first thing to know is that estrogen is not a hormone. It's a family of hormones. And one of the analogies that everyone can resonate with is like fats. So everyone knows that fat is not just a thing. There is like unsaturated, polyunsaturated, they're saturated. The same thing with B vitamins. There's not a B vitamin, there's B1 through B12. And each one has a number and a letter and then a name. Like, so there's like B1 is thiamine, B2 is riboflavin. Well, estrogens in human in the human female, they come in four types and they, they have a letter and a number, E1, 2, 3, 4, and they have a name. The E1 is estrone, E2 is estradiol, E3 is estriol, and we won't go into E4. That's predominantly a fetal estrogen. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is that we got to stop talking using the wrong, the wrong words because it's very confusing yeah. if you say fat and you are talking about trans fat or saturated fat or, you know, olive oil. I mean, so you got to know what you're talking about. So the estrogen, that's the dominant one that's produced in the ovary during the reproductive years is E2, estradiol. Now, when they did this big study just over 20 years ago called the Women's Health Initiative, which is what really triggered this widespread fear of hormones for women in menopause, the hormone that they used, which they call estrogen, was a derivative from the horse who was pregnant, who 
was trying to get rid of it through the urine. It had already gone through the liver and been modified, what we call biotransformation or conjugation, so that it could become water-soluble to be removed from the horse's body through the kidneys. And that they called, um, the name that they gave to it was Premarin for like a pregnant mare. And the real name would be conjugated because it went through the liver, equine because it was horse, estrogens. And it wasn't even just one. It was a whole group of different estrogens. And also, by the way, that went into it because it was um, other types of hormones and all of which the horse was trying to get rid of and not anything that was human identical. This was from a horse. They're really different. And when you put this into a tablet and you gave it to a female to swallow, um, it actually was quite effective in reducing night sweats and hot flashes, but it wasn't the same as giving the estrogen, the estradiol E2 that the ovaries made. Because when you took it orally, the dominant estrogen that went into the bloodstream, other than the ones that were from the horse that weren't human at all, was E1 estrone. Now that's different from the estrogen made by the ovaries and it has a different effect because different estrogens bind to different receptors and different organ systems have a different predominance of different types of receptors. And the type of receptor that this estrogen would bind to estrone was predominantly called the alpha receptor. Whereas E2, estradiol from the ovaries, binds in a balanced way to all the estrogen receptors. And they have different effects. And like I said, different amounts in different organs. So you're getting like a different thing, okay? It's totally different than the effect of the estrogen made by the ovaries. And that's really important because you're Mm -hmm. giving something different, okay? And then as well, the progestin that was given, it wasn't progesterone. It wasn't the same hormone with the molecular structure of the progesterone made by the ovaries. It was a chemical that would never be found in any living creature called medroxyprogesterone, had dramatically found actually increases breast cancer. It actually is bad for blood. It's bad for the brain. It's some organs. It has a strong like activator of the progesterone receptor. And in others, it sort of acts as a blocker. That's why we call it really a hormone endocrine disruptor for progesterone. So it's different and it has a very negative effect. So the study was on these two compounds, the um, Premarin, the conjugated equine estrogens, and this phony baloney progesterone (laughs) called medroxyprogesterone acetate. And the conclusions weren't even that bad. That's like the amazing thing. In women in their 50s, it actually reduced mortality from all kinds of causes of death in a weird way by 30%. So believe it or not, it actually showed benefit. And even though it was not human at all in women who were in their fifties, but the study actually included predominantly older women because they Mm -hmm. didn't want them to have reduction in night sweats and hot flashes. So they, they wouldn't be blinded to what they were given the, you know, the placebo or the, the real hormone compound. So they used older women all the way up to the age of 79 with an average age of 63 And in that older group of women, it turned out that they had some adverse effects. In fact, the Premarin increased the risk of blood clotting because it's a totally different compound than what is made by the ovary by 400%. So if you increase blood clotting in older women, 
well, that doesn't bode well, right? So it increased blood clots that could be in the microvasculature of the brain and in the heart and in the blood vessels. So it was not, you know, really beneficial in that respect, but um, it didn't really actually do as much harm as I would have predicted anyway. And when they gave just Premarin, the group of women who had a hysterectomy, they only gave them Premarin, it actually had a slight decrease in breast cancer incidence, although it didn't quite make statistical significance, but in the group that had the combination, it barely increased breast cancer, about the same degree that birth control pills do, which nobody seems to be making a fuss about to my always perpetual surprise. Yeah. And bottom line is that it it really um, didn't do as badly as I would have predicted. It reduced um, colon cancer significantly, bone fractures. And by the way, breast cancer, the timeline is about 20 years. In postmenopausal women, breast cancer was initiated about 20 years before it becomes clinically found, you know, before you can find it. And so if you give someone a compound and then the breast cancer incidence increases in year one, two, three, four, then it means that it didn't cause the breast cancer. Yeah, because it, it started well, a while ago. Yeah. It couldn't, it couldn't grow that fast. That's not the timeline for breast cancer in a postmenopausal woman. So it means that it accelerated the growth. Mm. And so it was the the MPA, the medroxyprogesterone acetate, that turned out to be a real accelerant of breast cancer. But even then it was only like a 24% increase, which, you know, when you look at the numbers, the actual numbers, not the percents, it was really a small number. So, I mean, I don't ever use that. I would not recommend anyone take that ever, but the outcome wasn't really anywhere near as bad as you think from all the hoopla that subsequently followed this study. But the problem was that they then applied these results to every hormonal product out there, including the human bioidentical, which is like doing the following. I always use this analogy. You do a study with strawberry flavored jelly beans. And the conclusion is that strawberry flavored jelly beans increase the risk of diabetes and cavities and obesity. But the ultimate conclusion is never eat an organic strawberry. Yeah. So perfect analogy. Oh my gosh. So here's the thing everyone out there, the human body did not evolve with our natural hormones to harm us. Okay. Okay. If you look at the incidence of, for example, breast cancer, heart attacks, stroke, hypertension, dementia, they all occur in postmenopausal women in enormously higher you know, rates than yeah. in premenopausal women. And so like, we just have to stop thinking that at some magical age, which is very variable because the so-called range mm-hmm. of normal menopause is 45 to 55. And, mm-hmm. and early menopause is 40 up to 45. Late is after 55 and premature is before the age of 40. So there are women across many years that develop menopause. So Estrogen and progesterone, and estrogen meaning estradiol, the type made by the ovary, doesn't become evil in one woman at age 45 and another woman at age 56. You know, it's um, beneficial at every age. And in fact, we know from much data that's collected that the earlier you are when you develop menopause, the worse off you are. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, having an early menopause is not good. It's not like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of my ovarian function. No, no. no. And 
No, and there was a study that was just published just um, like at the very end of April in Mayo Clinic Proceedings that talked about the enormous economic, always economic impact of menopause in the workforce, you know, in the tune of billions of dollars of productivity decline of women who are going through menopause. And if that's what it takes to notice women, you know, that go through menopause is to say, hey, you know, employers out there, your workforce is not going to be so you know, spiffy if you don't pay attention to these women going through menopause. But their suggestion was you should accommodate them in the workforce, you know, give them more time off and be understanding and all that. And of course, well, you, which should you should be. You should be. <laughs> but how about if as a medical society, you know, as a, you know, that we actually just treat them better. But they did actually in that article, and I was really proud of them, that they mentioned that one of the problems that they found, which was really surprising, that the women who were being treated with hormones in that study, they didn't do better than the women who weren't on treatment. And so their premise was, which I agree, that first of all, the women who got treated were probably the ones who had the worst symptoms. So they were in the worst shape to begin with. And number two, that they were severely undertreated because mm. the mantra that came out of the Women's Health Initiative was because of the fear of hormones and like, don't use them at all unless you absolutely must, was if you do use them, use the very smallest dose. So really using doses that are not efficacious, it would be like saying, you know, vegetables, like you know, if you have to eat them, do so, but make sure you keep it to the bare minimum, like maybe one bite of broccoli a month. I yeah. mean, like, what good is that going to do? <laughs> so if you use hormones at a level, and by the way, this, they've shown this in some of the studies, you like in the KEEP study, if you give such a small dose of the hormones, the estrogen in particular, the estradiol, then the levels in the blood are about the same as the levels in the blood of the women who weren't treated. I mean, yeah. so- I mean, yeah. it's like it's all smoke and mirrors. You're you think you're treating them, but you give them so little that it doesn't even like raise the bar, you know, at all. Well, it becomes it becomes almost yeah. It becomes almost like a um, what's placebo. the word? Uh, a placebo. Yeah, like it right. almost becomes a placebo. And so, actually, that's yeah. true because when they compare placebo to to hormones. It, it's, it takes a while before they differ because um, there is a significant placebo effect. Hey guys, just a quick interruption to thank our third sponsor for this episode. If you've been wanting to jump into the world of peptides, but you're having trouble on where to find them, listen up. One of my favorite places to get oral peptides is from Level Up Health. Their star player is the Ultimate GI Repair Formula a powerful gut healing supplement that really gets the job done. It is packed with therapeutic dosages of BPC-157, KPV, and other synergistic compounds that work together to give you amazing results when you're healing your gut. And also, whether you want to improve your gut health, detox your liver, reduce inflammation, boost brain function, or simply optimize your overall well-being, Level Up has amazing supplements and formulas. What makes them stand out is that each product is specifically designed to target specific health goals and delivers therapeutic dosages of the ingredients so you don't have to take multiple supplements. Some of the other products they carry include KPV, Tudka, a complete liver complex, PEA, and so much more. To learn more, head on over to their website at www.leveluphealth.com without any ease in level. They have a whole range of unique products for you to check out. 
And if you do decide to make a purchase, they have a great discount for you, the audience, to use. Just use NAT10 for a 10% discount. And now let's get back to the episode. There's a group of people out there right now, and I've always been there, who are dead set against hormone replacement and say that there are natural ways to support the body's production of hormones, which I always kind of scratch my head because I think, you know, if my ovar- my ovaries are senescent, there's nothing you can do that's going to bring these babies back to life. I mean, I don't know, maybe someday there'll be some kind of stem cell injection you can push into yeah. ovaries that'll rejuvenate them. We were not there yet. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a little bit like, and, and it's not the same at all. You've got women wanting to go through childbirth nat- naturally without any drugs and the whole nine yards, but you have a, a you have a movement of, of people that are saying, you know, this hormone replacement is unnecessary. We can do this naturally without hormones. And I mean, and they swear up, down and sideways that, that they're effective. And I always wonder, are you just accepting a different reality and, and, you know, you're mitigating the symptoms, the negative symptoms of hormone replacement of, of that loss of hormones, which you can do, right. You can use Vitex and what's the other one, the wild yam, this, that, and the other thing. What do you say to people in that? <laughs> you're making funny faces. And I think part of it is, is discerning between the symptomatology, like the feeling of, of menopause versus what you've been talking about, which is what's happening under the hood, that increase in visceral fat mass, the increase in brain issues the, or decrease in, in cognitive function, the bones, the muscles, the, all the things that are, you know, these are the bigger things we have to mitigate moving into our- Once again- you know, the analogy that I use with this is that if for some reason you had to have your thyroid gland removed, but not cancer, like you had this gigantic goiter or saying yeah. that you had to yeah. take it out. Okay. No one ever would suggest, well, I mean, you lost your thyroid and here's what we're going to do. I want you to meditate. I want you to exercise. I want you to eat more vegetables and take ashwagandha. I mean, I'm not against any of those things. Okay. Right. But not going to replace your thyroid hormone. So we just have to be real. When you have ovarian failure, you know, really, there's no more production of estrogen, estradiol, and progesterone from the ovaries. Testosterone will put on the back burner for the moment. Yeah. Um, there is nothing that you can do to, like you said, you can't bring the ovary back to life when it's gone. By the way, there are like for fertility purposes, they're doing now PRP injections into the um, aging ovary, but it's not gone. It's just aging and it's actually helping to bring it back to life, but to increase fertility, but we can't, we can't, we can maybe delay a little bit. We're not stopping menopause and maybe someday we'll have cloned ovaries. We don't have them yet. So it is what it is. You know, when they're gone, they're gone. We cannot bring them back. And there are some amazing things that we can do through lifestyle. So I'm a hundred percent because no matter what we do with giving hormone therapy, and we like mentioned like doing rhythmic and so on. It's not the same as having a 21 year old pair of ovaries. We are not even close to replicating a real ovarian function. We're just mm-hmm. better. It's just better. It's not giving back ovaries. So we have to use every tool in our toolbox, which includes all the lifestyle things, which includes, I call them the miracles of nature, the phytoestrogens 
mm-hmm. are in plants and I'm a hundred percent for them. And I, I, a lot of the plants that are called superfoods, when you really look at what makes them a superfood, it's really a phytoestrogen. It's amazing. We have all of these polyphenols that really are that what their estrogen mimics in the sense they're very weak and they're not estrogen. They're, they're plants and they're polyphenols, but they bind to estrogen receptors, creating a beneficial effect, like as if they are a hormone. And they include a lot of the polyphenols, like, okay, from the legumes, and we know mostly people talk about soy, but it's all the legumes. They have the isoflavones, which yeah. are phytoestrogen polyphenols, and then seeds and nuts. They have lignans. The one that always gets the most press is flaxseed, but it's across the spectrum of nuts and seeds. And then when we look at fruits and vegetables, for example, in pomegranates, which has always been called a superfood, there's a logic acid, which converts into urolithins, which are phytoestrogens. From things like the skin of red grapes and other fruits, there's the still beans, which is a group that includes resveratrol, which are phytoestrogens. And and we have like from apples, onions, um, you know, garlic, we have quercetin, also phytoestrogen. And so it's it's just amazing how all these superfoods are really phytoestrogens and eating them is a miraculous. There was a study that was done by Neil Bernard, who's a cardiologist, who's a, a vegan advocate. And he gave like a cup of soy to women who had significant night sweats and hot flashes. And over 12 weeks, close to 100% of them had close to 100% resolution of their symptoms. So I'm not, I mean, totally, this is great, but it's not the same as having the real hormone. So you can do tremendous amounts to improve overall health, to reduce symptoms, but it's not the same as having a physiologic dose of these hormones, but I'm totally in favor of that. And when you use certain supplements that have phytoestrogens that are in a concentrated form, like say quercetin, um, or you use some of the, um, like the root of the Siberian rhubarb, and um, you know, some people like black cohosh, I haven't really been that impressed, but you know, other types of phytoestrogens that are concentrated into a nutraceutical product, sometimes they can help as well. So I call that green medicine, okay, when yeah. you use it, um, and, and so on. So I'm not against any of that, but the reality is that it's second best or it's an adjunct, you mm-hmm. know, like to doing the real thing. So like the real thing, meaning like get back the hormones in your body because you need to have not just, it takes different amounts to create different effects, okay? So the amount that suppresses night sweats and hot flashes is very different than the amount that's necessary to maintain the proper neurological function in your brain, immune function, and you know cardiovascular health. So you have to do like the total package is what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. And if you want to be healthy and yes, it is tricking mother nature because is menopause natural? Of course it's natural, mm-hmm. but everything we do in medicine is unnatural. So I'm over that. Like there's nothing, <laughs> Thank natural, you. About, there's <laughs> Thank nothing you. natural about pharmaceuticals. You know, no. there's nothing natural about epidurals or anesthesia surgery. What's natural about doing surgery? What's natural about anything that we do in medicine? Basically, medicine is designed to be unnatural to fix something that has naturally gone wrong or, you know, Mm -hmm. could be from a trauma, which is a sort of variant of natural. You get hit by a truck. 
um, and so on. But the bottom line is that I, you know, I totally am honest. Yes, nothing I do is really natural. But what I want to do is to create the most physiologic natural state. So I'm not trying to alter Mother Nature. I'm trying to augment Mother Nature in terms of getting back to where we are when we're at our healthiest as best we can. Yeah. So, um, and that means having actual physiologic hormones, which like we touched on, if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to take hormones, I'm going to do it, then you want to take human identical or what's mm-hmm. sometimes called bioidentical. So you want to use the same hormones that your ovaries made, not some chemical alternative that was really technically an endocrine disruptor. So you want to do things that the body is supposed to have in it, even though the body doesn't have it at that time, we want to put it back in. Like if someone has type one diabetes, and they're now making no insulin because they make antibodies that destroyed the cells that make insulin. What do you want to put in the body? You want to put in human identical insulin, right? Yeah. That's like a miracle that keeps type one diabetics living long, normal lives. So we want to do that for women in menopause, give them the identical hormones that the ovaries made that they no longer are making. And so, and we can do that. That's like the miracle of these brilliant scientists that we can actually give identical hormones, but then we don't want to just give the identical hormones. We want to give them in the levels and rhythms that the human female body was designed to be optimized with. So we now know that everything is about dose. It's about timing. It's about rhythm, right? So like when you eat, and what you eat and how much you eat all matter. The same thing with hormones, what you take, when you take it, how much, the rhythms and so on. Women are beautifully rhythmic. We have circadian rhythms, we have lunar rhythms, we have seasonal rhythms. And the more we stick to keeping in accord with those natural rhythms, the better off we will be from a health perspective. So this is very simple thinking, like just try to replicate what we had when we were at our healthiest. Don't recreate a new scenario. And so what women have when they're the healthiest is a rhythm of hormones that we call the menstrual cycle. And so we want to ideally recreate the menstrual cycle. Well, we don't really have that available in terms of data published studies. So what I am, and by the way, we're trying to get a study going where we will try to give really rhythmic, like have different levels of estrogen and progesterone throughout the cycle. Mm -hmm. But what we can do now is at least give a dose of estradiol that's going to get us to a level that would be sort of like an average level throughout the menstrual cycle, not the lowest, not the highest, but sort of like an average level, and then give the progesterone at a level that is going to be you know, functionally beneficial. And for just two weeks of the cycle, so not every day, because there's no time in a woman's life that she ever makes progesterone every single day. That's not how the menstrual cycle works. She makes it only half the cycle during the luteal phase after ovulation. So we want to recreate that rhythm of the menstrual cycle and levels that are reasonably physiologic, you know, in accordance with what was um, appropriate during the reproductive years. And what does that give you? It gives you a pretend period. Now it's it real. Yes, it does. It gives you real blood. Of course, it, we're not making you fertile. We're not no. like doing that. And you're not going to have like bad cramps because it's not, it's not a menstrual cycle in the sense that you're ovulating. It's just real blood. And think of it this way. 
it's a small price to pay to have this little bleeding episode every month to be healthier, have healthy longevity. Because think of it when you have the menstrual bleed as a purging, like a fresh start to the body. You're not just purging the old lining cells of the uterine cavity, you're purging cells elsewhere. Because estradiol is really the trigger to program self-suicide, getting rid of old yucky senescence, old cells, which are the ones that create inflammation and mm-hmm. also turn to cancer. So you're purging all those yucky cells. And as well, recognizing that you're allowing estradiol to do its job, which part of which is growth. Now it grows the uterine lining. Well, it's also growing bone and ligaments. It's also repairing and replacing cells that die. That's all part and parcel of what estradiol does. So you have to give it in the dosing and rhythms to actually accomplish all the, the, what you're trying to accomplish. It depends on what your goals are for taking hormones. If your goal is just suppression of night sweats and hot flashes, then you don't need to do that. You could give a little bit of estrogen and a little bit of progesterone every day. You won't grow the lining of the uterus. You won't bleed um, and you won't have night sweats and hot flashes, but you're not addressing all the other aspects of healthy longevity. But that's a personal choice. I have patients that say it's a deal breaker. I'm not going to have bleeding after menopause. So that's your choice. You know, I'm just here to twist anybody's arm, but to just say there's compromises, right? If you decide that you don't want to do it, then don't do it. But know that you're not going to get the optimal effect from the hormones because you're not taking them in an optimal way. It just is what it is, right? You people, there are people who purposely decide, you know, I'm not going to eat vegetables. I'm not going to exercise. I'm not going to get some, you know, I'm not going to go to bed at the right time. You know, well, what can I say? You know, as long as you're making these choices from a position of knowledge and you're purposely choosing things that, well, you just decided you don't want to do it because you, you know, you just, would rather sit and watch TV than exercise or whatever. That's your choice. But know that there is a difference in the long-term benefits of hormones, depending on the dose and the rhythm. It just is. So if we have listeners who are sitting there going, okay, this makes sense to me. I can deal with a couple of days bleeding, but I went through menopause 10 years ago. Can I start cyclical hormone therapy now or is it too late? Like, is it the kind of thing you have to move through menopause and and implement as you're moving through? Or is it the kind of thing that someone could just start with given new information? Because there's just there's nobody like they're not nobody, but there's very few people who talk about this. And I remember, you know, when I first heard noise about this, about you talking about it, I'm like, okay, we need to talk. (laughs) This makes a lot of sense to me. We need to have a conversation. So a woman that's gone through menopause within the last 10, 20, however many years, is it ever too late to start? Well, the official, you know, official recommendation is that you should start hormones within 10 years and under the age of 60. What is that based on? The Women's Health Initiative. Who cares about the Women's Health Initiative? That's, you know, the jelly bean story. So (laughs) look at other studies. Studies like the elite study, which was not really the best study either because they used an oral estradiol product, which is not useful um, in the big sense. It's not the best choice. But even in that study where they used the wrong product because they gave it orally, 
they still they studied women who were further out in menopause. And what did they show? They showed no harm. It was only a few years, but they showed no harm. And there are others that have been looking at it in older women. So it's not, we don't have a lot of data, but mm-hmm. looking at what the alternatives are, um, and even in the Women's Health Initiative in older women, they still showed building bone, they showed lower colon cancer, and they used all the wrong stuff. So I will start women at any age. And we also know this is like, I think the real, um, like, it just shows that you can do good. Because at any age, at any age, it's recommended now and strongly recommended that women go on vaginal estrogen therapy. Because Mm -hmm. women now have what they call used to be called vaginal atrophy. Now they call it genital urinary syndrome of the menopause, which encompasses vaginal prolapse and vaginal dryness, painful sex, frequent urinary tract infections, incontinence, that whole gamut of things affecting those systems. And what they found is that giving vaginal estrogen is beneficial to some degree for everything that has to do with the bladder and the vagina after menopause, no matter how far out you are, you could be- interesting. 70s, 80s, there's no age restriction or time restriction for giving vaginal estrogen. And guess what happens when you give vaginal estrogen? Things get better. Mm -hmm. So why would I think the only system in the body that can benefit from late onset use of of estrogen is the vagina and the bladder? That it's illogical. I mean, it doesn't make sense. But isn't there... But isn't there a um, the last person I asked about this was said to me the only thing is and I, and actually there was an I was asking a different question but this is a good question because I this is a good answer because I wanted to ask you about is it ever too late to start but but the the other what was said to me was that well once you're ten years out for the first year of hormone replacement there could be a slightly higher risk of cardiovascular event and so we just need to be more you're shaking your head so oh, for people. Are listening. She's been shaking for like the last 10 words. Because Tell us. That's, yeah. that's all um, the legacy, the bad legacy of the Women's <laughs> Health Initiative. Because okay. remember, I told you, you were listening. I'm listening. You took, I'm talking about everybody else. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You took, if you took the Premarin, the conjugated equine estrogens, it increased blood clotting risk 400%, fourfold. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking about a different product. Completely okay. different set of rules. There's yeah. no evidence of that using human bioidentical hormones. Now, granted, I have to be you know totally transparent here because the negativity was so pervasive after the Women's Health Initiative, few studies have been performed. But yeah. what we do have is a lot of data, because I did a whole deep dive into researching everything, a lot of data, especially out of Europe, where they use transdermal through the skin, estradiol, it showed no evidence of increased blood clotting or harms throughout the age spectrum, okay? So it was very, very beneficial. These were observational studies because nobody's putting in the money to create the double-blinded, placebo-controlled study. It's not going to happen. So we have to work with science and observational data. But um, in terms of timing, there's no question that earlier is better than later. Of course. Absolutely. Because in fact, now we know that you can have a lot of um, cardiovascular effects that are negative, musculoskeletal effects that are negative during the so-called perimenopause, the mm. transitional years. Because once we get over this word menopause, because it's an artificially defined condition, when we say menopause is 
artificially defined as 12 consecutive months without any vaginal bleeding. Yeah. Well, is not nature okay it's a it's a process it's not like you cross the finish line and you say i've arrived no it's a <laughs> process of ovarian aging and the damage from loss and inconsistency of hormone production from the ovaries occurs years before right. the actual final menopause the the final period occurs so there we really should do what i am now calling hormone supplementation. Yeah. So mitigating the ups and downs. Yeah. And then hormone replacement after there's no more hormones being produced. So it's supplementation followed by replacement. And because now we know that there's you know a whole host of things that are happening and, and estrogen is great at prevention. It's less mm-hmm. great at repair. Like yeah. once it's like end stage disease. So you have end stage osteoporosis, you know, your bones are in terrible shape. You have end stage heart failure, end stage dementia. I mean, let's be real. I can't just start hormones and everything's going to be right. I can't. It doesn't work that way. We can't fix everything that's broken, but we can do some benefit at every stage because the vagina benefits, then everything benefits because it's all one body. And so we can start it at any age, recognizing the limitations in the data because mm-hmm. we just have limited data. Um, that's And we know that hormone receptors do change if they're not used over time. That right. is true. And by the way, that's true in birth control pill use. I see women who are on them for 20 years and they go off and things are not right because yeah. their hormone receptors and their ovaries like, you know, get like rusty, you know, things yeah. are not always right. So it's not ideal to have long periods without hormones and then start them. But my thing, it keep coming back. You know, we know that we can still build bone. We know that we can still improve the gut. We know that we can still improve the vagina. And there's some data that we can improve the brain. So why can't we do something good for everything? It's not ideal. Ideal is that we start during the perimenopause, but we have to start, like I said, on the timeline, wherever someone is. Yeah. So it can stop me from giving hormones at any age. And Dale Bredesen, who's doing the, you know, reversal of Alzheimer's, he puts all his women, cognitively impaired women in whatever stage they are on estradiol, you know, the oh, hormone. That's brilliant. Yeah. No, yeah. so I'm not the only one out there who believes that no. the brain needs estradiol. No, I'm not at all. You no, know, no, menopause brain is absolutely a loss of estrogen. I mean, men, well, women, it's it's a thing, right? Well, it's at every at every age, once you're like it past menopause years, so whether it's 65, 75, 85, whatever, if you look at all the people who have dementia at that age, male and female, 70% are female. Women have enormously higher rates of Alzheimer's compared to men. And it's a hormone thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we need to, you know, get on this because the you know, there's nothing worse in life than having no brain function. I mean, it doesn't matter that your heart's beating, you know, if you're brain dead. So yeah. we've got to be very aware that women are more vulnerable to developing dementia compared to men and and get on this. I mean. And who can afford us in a society to put all the women in like memory homes and take care of them all? You know, we can't afford that and nobody wants it. So, you know, if we can prevent fractures, oh my gosh, it's so sad to see how many women end their lives following a fracture. It's, yeah. so we need to maintain every structure and still the number one leading killer of women is 
cardiovascular events like heart attacks mm-hmm. and strokes. By age 65, women have more high blood pressure, more strokes, more aneurysms that rupture than men. And women die more from their first heart attack. The I call it the halo effect from being reproductive and having our hormones. By the time you're 65, it's gone. Okay. Yeah. You are matched men in terms of cardiovascular risk and surpass men in certain areas. By the time a woman is 65, 75% will have hypertension, which is true significant vascular disease. So we've got to recognize aging is harmful to our health and yeah. anything we can do to slow the ravages of aging by maintaining everything that we can, every tool in our toolbox, which means hormones along with every lifestyle trick, you know, with mm-hmm. fitness and stress and sleep and, you know, toxic and avoidance, everything that we can do, optimizing nutrition at every stage of life with a special focus on our most needy times like pregnancy and menopause, then we will be able to live longer and have better lives and cost the healthcare system a lot less and, well, and intervention. And- Absolutely. And move into a phase of of contributing back to society in a different in some other way, you know, like, I mean, at some level. And and to me, it's funny, people talk to me about retirement, and I look at them like they're a little bit crazy. But I think that, you know, we and I know you're in this boat as well, like, I feel so blessed to do what I do. I feel so lucky. I love what I do. There's no part of me that looks forward to not doing this. Like I'm like, no. I'll change, well, I'll evolve. We do. I'll... we do. We evolve. Like my medical practice is not the medical practice I had 20 years ago because I've evolved into moving. I did thousands of deliveries and I gave up obstetrics. It's very hard. It's I felt like I'm like that. I don't know if you know the character Waldo in Where's Waldo? As yeah. you turn the pages, his backpack is losing things. He has less. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's how I go, you know, but, but unlike Waldo, I pick up other stuff. I just, yeah. you know, I give up one thing, but I pick up another thing and that's evolving, you mm-hmm. know, so I'm totally with you, you know, um, retirement to me seems boring, you know, having a balanced life, which includes doing productive work is what I enjoy and want for my entire life as well. That means I have to have a brain. I have to have that's a good right. heart. That's to, right. You know, I have to have all those things intact. And I thought maybe we could just for one minute touch on testosterone, just so people know what that is about. Yeah, so, but just to, hold know. on a sec. So I'd love to just so we can plan the our exit out of the podcast, because I mean, I could keep talking to you all day, to be clear. So I definitely want to touch on testosterone. I'd love to. I do also want to speak about the cyclical application of hormones. Is it ever too late to start that? That was that was a oh, part of my no. question before. Like, can you just. Pick, you know, if you've been on hormone th- replacement, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy for the last eight or nine or 10 or 15 years, is it ever too late to apply a new new thinking? And how do you oh. start with the moon? Like, what do you do? So I'm so glad that you brought that up. I do this in my practice with my patients all the time. Um, I switch them into the rhythmic um, where you're doing the the pulsed progesterone and a for a more physiologic because a lot of the women I see that are coming from other you know practitioners they're on tiny doses of estrogen and this this 
the daily progesterone, which is based on this notion that you want to give the smallest possible dose and you don't want to bleed. So I just transition them like immediately. You know, I just you do you know, okay. If they're if you now as far as the estrogen level, I I will often work my way up. You know, just like you wean down, you wean up. You know, kind of a thing because I want people to like if someone is starving, you don't give them a immediate like a five course meal, right? Right. right. Like like if you're freezing, you've got to raise their temperature gradually. So I will work my way up, you know, to a better physiologic level of estradiol, but I make the conversion like right away in terms of the progesterone uh, for 14 days. And so um, there's no, there's no reason not to do that. By the way, unfortunately, it's really important for people to know that I work off of science a lot because once the Women's Health Initiative came out, there have been very few long-term studies, mm-hmm. no really long-term studies. And the KEEP study and the ELITE study, they were short-term. They didn't use optimal doses or forms of hormones, but they didn't show harm. They showed some benefits, especially in younger women and also with quality of life issues. But we have to work a lot of times on science we can't wait for these big studies because they're not happening. They're not. And you can't like you have this, they call it the window of opportunity. There really is an ideal time to get started and earlier is better than later. We just have to do what we can do to optimize wherever stage somebody's at, but earlier is better. And we just have to, we can't wait. I mean, so everyone has to make, her own choice. I'm just here to give you know information. I don't twist anyone's arms, but it's really important to know that we really don't have big studies on a lot of the things I'm talking about. It's all science because, and there's some studies, but not gigantic studies. Not enough. Yeah. Health initiative shut all that down, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay. So let's jump to testosterone because I, I like you definitely want to speak to it for the ladies. Well, well, I just want to touch on that. So testosterone is very different from, in terms of its production from estradiol and progesterone. It's a totally different skill set to make testosterone. You don't need eggs, okay? In right. order to make progesterone, in order to make estradiol, you have to have eggs in the ovary. But And once they're gone, they're gone, and then you can't make those hormones. You do not need to have a single egg to make testosterone. It's made in a different part of the ovary. So the ovaries can make testosterone forever. That's one of the reasons why they now have lots of good data showing that removal of the ovaries at any stage of life, even in the postmenopausal years, increases mortality because there is a key. I mean, it's really important to know that the testosterone that's made by the ovaries contributes to healthy living for women Mm -hmm. and removing the ovaries, even ovaries that are no longer making any estrogen or progesterone is harmful to the, the overall health of that woman. That's how important this testosterone from the ovaries is. Now, if you look at testosterone throughout the female body in a reproductive aged woman, it turns out that 25% of the testosterone that's circulating in the blood comes from her ovaries. 25% comes directly from the adrenal gland. But where does the other 50% come from? It comes from conversion of other androgens, male type hormones that come from the adrenal gland, predominantly the adrenal gland, a little bit from the ovary that get converted into testosterone through enzyme action in peripheral tissues, predominantly fat, but other Mm -hmm. tissues as well, but predominantly fat. And so the adrenal gland is a huge contributor 
to circulating androgens and testosterone. But that extra stuff, that 25% that comes from the ovary uh, is really, really key. So it's very, very important. And as we age, the testosterone production in general tends to decline a reduction in total body testosterone production. But it's a more complicated thing to try to decide, well, when and if you should give testosterone supplementation. When should you give testosterone treatment? It's never replacement because you always still have testosterone. Mm -hmm. It's it's supplementation because it's complex because the adrenal gland is like a big part of testosterone production. And so is the conversion of the adrenal precursor androgens into testosterone. And then there's the skin, which, and other organs, which have an enzyme, 5 alpha reductase, which converts testosterone into a more potent form, which is called DHT, dihydrotestosterone, which has the effect on the receptors. And that can vary genetically from woman to woman. Also, certain conditions like inflammation can activate that that enzyme more aggressively. That's why inflamed people tend to have more hirsutism like women, more hair growth and more acne. And that's one reason why men, for example, who have male pattern baldness and mm-hmm. a lot of excessive body hair as a group, especially the, the balding is associated with increased risk for cardiovascular events like more heart attacks, because often what it is is they have inflammation and the inflammation triggers the production of more dihydrotestosterone, which causes more hair loss. And that's a sign of underlying inflammation. But there's also a genetic component. It's complex. That's yeah, because yeah, I was going to say, oh. like, you know, you get 20 year olds who lose their hair because it's a genetic like men. It's, it's, it's a genetic. genetic not, you look not purely genetic, it, but it's I mean, it's complex. Right. Yeah. So it's it is complex. And in women, too, 50 yeah. percent of women will have female hair loss that's called androgenic alopecia from Mm -hmm. the androgens. And the other thing that's confusing to a lot of people is around the perimenopause, you have a big surge of the hormones from the pituitary in response to the trigger from the brain to where they're trying to get the ovaries to make more estrogen, but the ovaries have more difficulty because they don't have the eggs. And so you have an increase in these hormones from the pituitary called LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. LH, from the luteinizing hormone from the pituitary, triggers the ovaries to make testosterone. So all estradiol in the ovary and all estradiol everywhere is made from testosterone. Testosterone is the precursor hormone to the production of estradiol. All estrogens are derived from androgens. I mean, so it's really mm. important to know that. And so the ovary makes testosterone, and then the testosterone is converted by a different an enzyme called aromatase in a different part of the ovary. Into estrogen, yeah. Into estradiol. But the production of testosterone is capable of being, you know, of happening long after the production of estradiol can no longer be made. But in the in the perimenopause, you have this high level of LH. So the ovary, which still has the capability of making testosterone very well, makes excessive amounts of testosterone. So women going through the perimenopause will often have high levels of testosterone compared to what they'd had like previously 10 years earlier. And then they have acne. So you have perimenopausal women. They say, what is happening to me? Am I going through puberty? <laughs> they get 
this, you know, like late forties acne and they start growing a little fuzz bear, you know, hair is coming out of their chin and their hair is thinning. And that's from excessive testosterone production from their ovaries. So it's not like, like a reflex. Some people give testosterone to every woman, like, like it goes down in menopause. It doesn't go down in menopause. It may actually go up in the beginning phase of menopause. Mm -hmm. So testosterone, I give testosterone therapy, but it's not easy to know exactly when and how much and, you know, the timing, because it's a much more complicated type of a a hormone. So that's really the takeaway. It's not like every woman needs to have testosterone when she's going through menopause. Some actually too much, but as they age, there's no question that testosterone levels will drop. And the area of the adrenal that makes testosterone called the zona reticularis actually literally shrivels. It shrinks up. So everything kind of shrinks as we get older. So it's, um, and so it's definitely a good thing to be aware of and sometimes to give. And also the precursor DHEA, which is a different androgen, which has been shown to help actually promote longevity and function of ovaries. And it's an anabolic, it helps you build up androgen. And it also is very good for bone. And there's a lot of articles on bone health in menopausal women with DHEA. So the androgens, I talk a lot about androgens. That's like a whole, you know, huge topic that takes a lot of time to go into. But the takeaway is it's complex. It's not as straightforward as the ovaries stop making estrogen and progesterone with menopause. It's more complex and it's not straightforward when and if to begin testosterone. supplementation. Yeah. It's not formulaic. That's so interesting. Okay. One last question. Cause you know, I, I mean, again, I I would love to keep talking to you longer. Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode with all the other questions, but the last question I'd like to address this episode, if we could is testing. So we get part of the world saying blood testing is the only way to test hormones. Another part of the world is like, it's all about the urine. These guys say the urine is no good. I've a lot of the practitioners I've talked to and people I work with will sometimes use both. They say you can't use, you know, if you're going to use urine testing, you have to also overlay the blood, the blood testing. What's your perspective on what's the best way to test hormones for women as you're trying to kind of unpack this puzzle and figure out what they need when? Uh, The gold standard is blood testing. That's where we have all the research and all the data. That said, if you're doing menstrual mapping, like in a younger woman or perimenopausal woman, the urine testing is is valid for what you're doing when you're doing that. But um, in terms of saliva, there could be future use of saliva, but right now it's just not really as validated. So Mm -hmm. I do not use um, saliva for any hormone other than cortisol which yeah. is by validated use. But um, so I don't use saliva. I use blood and for menstrual mapping, I use urine. So it's very straightforward. And yeah, you can no, get it from any, any major laboratory. For sure. Yeah, no, that's really interesting just because, you know, there's all this stuff about the dried urine testing that some people just only rely on that because they're like, well, that's the only way I'm going to see my metabolites. And, you know, there's this whole other thing about, you know, our when we look at a genetic test and it shows certain pathways being optimized over others when it comes to metabolizing estrogens, and some people might shunt more into the less desirable form of estrogen and the belief that if you look at urine testings, you're going to see the evidence of that metabolism of the estrogens. 
do well there's um the reality is we always want to optimize liver and gut function okay yeah. so we're not going to really enact a different clinical perspective or approach based on a test like that so i'm not against it i'm just saying you know when you have lim- if you have limited resources and funds yeah. probably put your money more into therapeutics and diagnostics at that stage yeah no that makes perfect sense okay dr gersh (laughs) (laughs) this has been fantastic i hope that we get to have a part two to this because i think that there's so many other places we could have gone but in the meantime where can people find you and tap into your wisdom well, I'm like we talked about, I'm an old fashioned doctor. I still have an office I call brick and mortar office. So my office is located in sunny Southern California in Irvine, California. It's an Orange County where I see patients every day. And I can also incorporate telemedicine. Uh, you know, I have to go with, you know, the letters of the law, but I can do a lot of telemedicine as well. So I hope that people who would like to have one-on-one care can can access me in that regard. And I try to do frequent Instagram lives. So I'd like to have people follow me and like me on Instagram, of course. And I do have um, a book out. Um, I have some on PCOS, but in terms of menopause, my recent book is Menopause 50 Things You Need to Know, which is really a good like little encyclopedia of, of menopause. And I hope to write more books about hormones and menopause, because I know people need more resources. Absolutely. No, there's, there's so many gaps there. So on Instagram, is it Dr. Felice Gersh? Close. It's, I have a period. So it's DR period Felice Gersh. And um, you got to put that period in there. And in terms of my, my office practice is called the integrative medical group of Irvine. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Gersh. This has been so amazing. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly or if you'd like to leave any comments or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.